We're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, start at verse 13 for this message today. Heavenly Father, I pray you bless this teaching. Bless it, Father, for your glory and your praise. Amen. Today we're going to see some final instructions that come from Paul to young Timothy. We're going to finish out this epistle. Heading number one, we're going to talk about obedience. We're going to then move into some honorable titles for the Father. And then we're going to go to some instructions for those that are materially rich in the church. And last but certainly not least, we're going to talk about how that we're supposed to stay with the truth and we're supposed to avoid falsehoods. I want to start off by reading verses 13 through 14. It says, In the presence of Yahweh who gives life to all, and before the Messiah Yeshua who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, I charge you to keep the commandment without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. In verse 13 and 14 is where I get the title for this lesson that Paul teaches to keep the commandments. And I'll get to that momentarily. First thing that we need to notice, though, is that Paul is charging Timothy about something. And we see this at the end of verse 13 where he says, I charge you. And the word charge has to do with giving an instruction, giving a command, or enjoining somebody to do a certain thing. And Paul makes this charge in the presence of two witnesses here in verse 13. The first is Yahweh God. He said, in the presence of Yahweh God in your translation, says, who gives life to all. And the second witness here is the Messiah, Yeshua the Messiah, who gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate, that is, before his death. I want you to notice how Paul, as we've seen before, in this particular epistle, and as we see in many of Paul's writings in the New Testament, he places a, a distinction, a distinction that needs to be made between... Yahweh and Yeshua, between the Father and the Son, between God and the Son of God. Here in this verse, it is God, it is Yahweh who gives life to all. He even grants, according to Yeshua's own words, that the Son has life in Himself. He grants that to the Son. And then the Son, by the authority that has been given to Him, has the power to grant life unto other people. But it first has been granted to Him. It is Yahweh, it is God, it is the Father that gives life to all. And then it is the Messiah, who is Yeshua, that gave the good confession before Pontius Pilate. When the Messiah stood there before Pontius Pilate and gave that good confession before His death, that was not God that was talking to Pontius Pilate. That was God's Son. And we've got to be in the habit of making the same distinction as Paul here in our speech, and in our writing, the distinction between the Father and the Son is blurred tremendously in churches that teach the co-equality and the co-eternality of God and Christ. When we teach that the Father is the one God and that Yeshua is the Son of the one God, you know what we do? We cause that blur to go away and we speak as the Scriptures speak. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all and in the presence of the Messiah. Many times teachers that believe that the Father and the Son are one person or one essence or one being or however they want to state it, they sound as though they believe in the distinction between the Father and the Son. Do you know why they sound that way? When they read the Scriptures, they sound that way. Because you can't read the Scriptures and not sound that way. 
The Scriptures make such a potent distinction between the two that when you read them, it automatically comes out like that. The blur or the gray is caused when they begin the explanation. What that really means is that's talking about one essence. And they use, a lot of times, 3rd and 4th century Greek philosophy to explain Hebraic principles that had nothing to do with Greek philosophy at all. We need to be in the habit of making the same distinction between God and His Son as Paul was. And as many people in the New Testament, authors in the New Testament, do. Let's not haze over and gray over the biblical distinctions, but make it abundantly clear that we believe in Yahweh God the Father. And we believe in Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of the living God. In verse 14, Paul continues to tell us exactly what he is commanding or charging Timothy about. He charges him to keep the commandment without fault, without spot, until Yeshua appears again. So we've got to ask ourselves, what command or commandment is Paul referring to? And we could say that Paul is referring to what he has just written in verse 12 concerning fighting the good fight for the faith. We talked about that yesterday. At the end, he told Timothy, fight the good fight, lay hold on eternal life. Then he goes on and he says, I charge you to keep this command. And I would agree with that. I think that that's part of it. But I believe that the command to fight the good fight of faith would include the entirety of Yahweh's words. I do. There's only one faith. Jude talks about this one faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. It's not one faith for the Old Testament and a different faith for the new. There's only one faith. And when you fight for the good fight of faith, you're fighting for the entirety of Yahweh's words. When you lay hold on eternal life, you're fighting for the entirety of the Scriptures that all teach about eternal life. Not just the New Testament, not just the Old, but both. So what Paul is here doing is instructing Timothy to live according to the commandment, or the command. The command there refers to the entirety of the Torah. It's just like in Psalm 19 where it says in the singular, the commandment of Yahweh is pure. The word commandment there refers as though all of Yahweh's commandments are all bound up into one. And we know that we can't put them really into one. That's just love Yahweh. Yeshua placed them into two headings. Love Yahweh and love your neighbor. But they can all be placed in one. Just love the Father. Do what He says. That's what Paul's doing. So this verse... And many others that we've seen when we study this epistle completely contradicts those who would have us to believe that Paul taught contrary to the commandments of Yahweh. No, he says in his final instructions to Timothy, he says, I charge you to keep the command. And not just to keep it, but to keep it without fault and without failure. Be wholehearted when you obey. 1 Timothy six fifteen through 16 It says, which God will bring about in His own time. He is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the only one who has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom none of mankind has seen or can see, to whom be honor and eternal might. Amen. He closes out in verse 14 to talk about the appearing of the Messiah. Then he goes on in verse 15 and he says, which God, and that's once again a reference to the Father, that's a reference to Yahweh, which God will bring about in His own time. Paul begins here by saying that God, the Father, mentioned back in verse 13, will bring this appearing of the Messiah about in His own time. And this seems to be a reference to me of the second coming of the Messiah. 
In other words, in Yahweh the Father's timing, Yeshua will return. But only in the Father's timing. One guy asked me a couple weeks ago, he said, how do you feel about calculating the second coming of Yeshua? I said, I don't feel anything about it. I don't try to do it. He said, why? I said, because even Yeshua doesn't know when he's coming back. Mark thirteen thirty two, And the, the man kind of looked at me, and I said, it's just something I really don't concern myself with. What I concern myself with is making sure that I'm ready when he comes. Getting my life in order. Because the scripture says he comes in an hour when you think not, as a thief in the night cometh. So I want to be ready, just like the master that left his two servants at the house. He left and he came back at an hour that they didn't know. One of the servants was doing the master's will. One was just frolicking and doing what he wanted to. He came in an hour when the servants knew not. That's when Yeshua was going to come back. When Yahweh the Father gives him the release to come, he'll come. But he says in Mark 13, 32, and I think Matthew 24, maybe verse 36, somewhere around there. He says, Of that day and that hour knoweth no man, not the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only my Father. Only my Father. And so the Father, that is God, according to verse 15, will bring about the appearing of the Son in His own time. The verse goes on to say, in verse 15, He is. And this is talking about God the Father, not the Son. In verses 15 through 16. These are honorable titles for the Father and not for the Messiah, at least in this context. The titles begin with the blessed and the only sovereign. The word sovereign here means a ruler or an officer. And in this case, we're referring to Yahweh being the supreme governor of the world. He's the blessed and the only supreme governor of the entire world. And this is why the next two titles are given, that He is King of kings and He is Lord of lords. I want you to notice how these last two titles, King of kings and Lord of lords, describe the sovereignty of Yahweh that a lot of people are trying to fight against today. Although there are many kings and lords in the earth, and there are, and we may not be accustomed to calling rulers lords in America, but they are in Britain. And it will be the same thing as we calling people a governor or a ruler or a leader or a president in America. They have the House of Lords in Britain and something different here, but they're all earthly kings and earthly lords. But Yahweh is the king of kings. And He's the Lord of lords. As a matter of fact, when you look at that, He's the king of of those that rule all the other rulers, and he's the lords of all the others that have dominion, earthly dominion. He's king and he's lord over them. Daniel chapter 4 verse 25 teaches us that the Most High is ruler over the kingdom of men, and he gives it to anybody that he wants. Any ruler that is ruling in any capacity in the world is only ruling because of the sovereign choice of Yahweh. All of them are bringing about Yahweh's own good purpose. Now, granted, some he sets up like Pharaoh. He does. Exodus chapter 9 and Romans chapter 9 tells us that Yahweh raised up Pharaoh for a purpose. It wasn't a good purpose in the area of obedience, but it was a purpose that brought about Yahweh's plan to perfection. And Yahweh raises up some rulers, some presidents, some governors, some lords, like he did Pharaoh. Others he raises up like he did Moses to rule righteously. To rule justly. Because Yahweh is king over all the kings and he's lord over all the lords of the earth, that's why, or this is one of the reasons why, and probably the primary reason why, we should never obey a human lord or king. 
that contradicts the king over the kings and the Lord over the lords. Never should we. If we ever see a commandment of an earthly king and it contradicts the commandment of the king of kings, we're obligated, not just supposed to, but we're obligated as children of the king of kings to obey him and to disobey the earthly kings. As Acts 5 verse 29 tells us the apostles said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Why did they make that statement? They made that statement because men were trying to command them to do something that was contrary to God's word, to God's law. Daniel did it when he prayed to Yahweh, even though there was that 30-day decree that no one would be allowed to pray to anybody except Darius or the God that they served. Daniel said, no, I just, you know, that's a commandment of man. I've got to obey Yahweh rather than man. So I'm going to pray to Yahweh. The Hebrew midwives did that when they were commanded to kill those little babies that those Hebrew women birthed forth. Well, what did the midwives do? They didn't kill those babies. That would be murder. Yahweh's law contradicted that. They disobeyed the Egyptian government of that time. The same thing with the three Hebrews. They were told to bow down to this image that was made in Babylon. This great and mighty image. When they heard all the sound of the various instruments bow down to the image, what did they do? They said, no, we're not going to bow down. They contradicted man's law, kings and lords, to obey God's law, the king of kings and the lord of lords. And when we see that he's the blessed and the only sovereign king of kings and lord of lords, that's what this means. And he's got to be our Lord. I believe in what's called Lordship Salvation. That if you claim that you're saved, you'll live like He is your Lord. That is, He is your boss. He is your ruler. I should also briefly point out, before I move on to the next verses, that some people make the argument, and I've had it made to me in public debate before, that since Yeshua is referred to with the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords in the book of Revelation, and He is definitely one time, possibly two, but I know for sure once, that he must be Yahweh. And people do this often. They say, well, Yahweh is called Savior, and Yeshua is called Savior, so Yeshua must be Yahweh. They must be one and the same. There's not a father and a son. It's just, it's like, you know, where Clark Kent gets into the phone booth and he puts on the Superman costume and he comes out as Superman. And I'm I'm not saying that's exactly what they believe, but that kind of gives you an idea of, of the manifestation teaching. But it's not good biblical study To say that because two people share the same title, that they're the same person. That's not good Bible study. I can give you many, many examples. I'll just give you a few. Yeshua looks at his disciples and he says, You are the light of the world. But in another place, he says, I am the light of the world. As a matter of fact, I think the first one's in Matthew 5.16 and the, the second one is in John. Well, they're both called the light of the world. They both share that title in some sense. I think Yeshua to a greater degree than his disciples. But it doesn't mean that they're one and the same people or one and the same person. They can share that title. As a matter of fact, we find in the book of Ezra that Artaxerxes was called king of kings in the book of Ezra. We also find that Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, Daniel himself says, you, O Nebuchadnezzar, are a king of kings. What that's referring to is sometimes... Even human kings would have a lot of rulers or kings under them. Like Nebuchadnezzar, he had a lot of people that was under his hierarchy. So he was referred to in that sense as a king over those kings. But guess what? He wasn't the ultimate, supreme king of kings. He would have no authority except Yahweh give it to him. 
And seeing that Yeshua, the Bible tells us in Acts 2.36 that God hath made this Yeshua both Lord and Christ. He's not automatically the Lord. God made Him Lord. He gave Him that position. He gave Him the position of Mashiach, of Christ. He gave that to Him. So He's not Lord over Yahweh. Yahweh is the supreme King of kings. He's the supreme Lord of lords. But He can appoint other people on the earth to even be a king over kings that are up under their hierarchy, up under their authority. In verse 16, Paul continues to speak of Yahweh as the only one who has immortality. I've dealt with the word immortality before. It has to do with deathlessness. Somebody that is incapable of dying, literally. Yahweh can grant immortality to others like Yeshua, and He has granted that immortality to the Messiah since the resurrection. He'll grant it to us that raise in Messiah at our resurrection from death, that immortality. But we, and Messiah, have it granted. Yahweh has it inherent, not inherently, Yahweh has it by nature. He didn't have to inherit it. It's just who He is. He's not capable of, of dying. He alone has immortality, according to verse 16. And then it speaks of Yahweh dwelling in unapproachable light and not being able to be seen by man. These two go hand in hand. The holiness and the glory of Yahweh are so full and so potent that nobody can approach Him in all of His fullness to look upon Him in all of His glory and in all of His wonder. In Exodus chapter 32, He allowed Moses to see what some Bibles call the hinder parts of Yahweh, whatever you want to interpret that to mean. Just a tinge. Just a tinge there. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and pass by, and you can't see my face, whatever that means, but I'll let you see my hinder parts. And even the tinge of the hinder parts of Yahweh, whatever that means, caused Moses' face to shine so brightly that he had to put a covering over top of it when he would talk to the people of Israel because it was so bright. Yahweh said, you cannot look upon me. You cannot come to my unapproachable light in all my fullness. And then Paul ends the honorable titles of Yahweh by pronouncing honor and eternal might upon him. Not that Yahweh needs Paul or anybody to pronounce anything on him. When I say pronounce, I mean that we're recognizing what Yahweh already has. Yahweh doesn't need us to pronounce anything on Him, any kind of blessing or any kind of might, as though He doesn't have it before we pronounce it. No, it's not that at all. We're just recognizing who He is and what He stands for. Hopefully we all agree with that. He's the Most High, and we need to call attention to that. You know, when we sing, a lot of times I think we come and we sing praises to Yahweh, and we just really take it for granted. We just go through the motions and, hey, I've got to sing today, I'm going to play this guitar but we're singing to the Most High. And so we better do it with all of our might. Make a joyful noise unto Him. Verses 17 through 19. He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on Yahweh God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the age to come so that they may take hold of life that is real. Now Paul harkens back to something I dealt with in the last sermon on the Sabbath. He harkens back to riches here. And he admonishes those that are rich on a few things. This proves, like we talked about the other night, that there are rich saints. There are rich people in, in, the, in the congregation, of, in, this, in the ecclesia of Yahweh, the called out ones of Yahweh. To be rich is not a sin. It's not a sin to be rich. And it's not a sin to be poor either. You know, Yahweh has rich people and He has poor people. 
the point in the last sermon was that to be either is simply Yahweh's calling on different individuals' lives. A rich man shouldn't look down on a poor man, neither a poor man look down on a rich man, but you have both extremes in Christianity today, and neither one of them are right. Paul tells Timothy to make sure to tell those who are rich in this current age, those rich in the assembly, in the congregation of Yahweh, both local and worldwide, that they should not have their riches or allow their riches to make them arrogant. They should not allow their wealth to muster up pride within them and place a trust in the uncertainty of wealth. Remember, Paul wrote earlier, we didn't bring anything into this world and we're not going to take anything out. That means there's uncertainty in wealth. There's a lot of wealthy, filthy rich people in this, in this world that are just terrible sinners. And there's a lot of terrible sinners that are poor too. See, rich and poor is not what makes you holy. What makes you holy is Yahweh's calling on your life and your acceptance of that call and your obedience to that call. The saints who are rich should instead, instead of letting that, that richness be, make them arrogant and trusting in the uncertainty of wealth, they should instead place their trust in Yahweh God who gives them wealth. And that's what it says there in verse 17, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. And I believe that Paul is once again being familiar with the Torah, and we've seen this all through the epistle. I think he's echoing Deuteronomy 8, 17-18, which says this in part. You may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me, but remember that Yahweh your God gives you the power to gain wealth. I think that's all that Paul is saying. Listen, if you're rich, if you're a rich Christian, don't trust in the uncertainty of riches. Don't let that make you puffed up. But recognize that it's only by His grace. It's Yahweh that gives you that ability to plant, to work, to have those riches. And in verse 18, he tells Timothy to instruct them to do good and to be rich in what? In good works. That's where the true riches are, is to be obedient to the Torah. Rich in good works. And he tells them to be generous and willing to share. Be generous with what you have. If you see somebody in need, you help them out. Be willing to share that which Yahweh has blessed you with so that others can be blessed that don't have much materially or financially. And then in verse 19, he talks about when the rich saints do these things, they're storing up for themselves a reserve in the kingdom. That's when the rich saints will begin the real life. Yahweh's telling them, I bless you in this life so that you can bless others. And if you use your wealth in the proper way, you'll experience greater wealth in the age to come. As verse 19 says, the wealth of the kingdom. Then he finally goes on to verses 20 through 21. He says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent empty speech and contradictions from the knowledge that falsely bears that name. By professing it, some people have deviated from the faith. Grace be with all of you. Finally, Paul instructs Timothy to guard what's been entrusted to him. Timothy has been given much in the way of spiritual gifting and knowledge of what is genuinely true, and he was to guard it with all of his heart and all of his mind. And I urge each and every one of us here today, including myself, to guard what's been entrusted to us. We've been given a gift. You've been given a gift. You're different. Yahweh's blessed you with knowledge that everybody doesn't have. And that's a gift that you shouldn't take lightly. You should recognize that it is a blessing and it is something that Yahweh's chosen to bless you and give you as His son or as His daughter. 
Don't throw away that gift. Don't ignore that gift. Don't ignore that work that Yahweh is doing in your life. Guard that knowledge and treasure it as the apple of your eye. I think it's the book of Proverbs that Solomon says, My son, look at the instructions of Yahweh, the knowledge of Yahweh, and keep it as the apple of your eye. And that's what Paul's saying here. He tells them to make sure to avoid all the irreverent and empty speech and all the contradictions from the so-called knowledge of this world. You know, there are a lot of great thinkers in this world, a lot of really intelligent thinkers in this world, but they think themselves right out of believing in the Father and the Son and obeying the Torah. They think themselves right out of that because they're so smart. That's so-called knowledge. Any knowledge that doesn't glorify Yahweh is so-called knowledge. It's knowledge, as the text says, falsely called. Science falsely called, some translations say. Their knowledge bears that name falsely. It's not really knowledge if it doesn't include the saving truths of Scripture. And it's not really a good work if it's not done to glorify the Creator of that good work and the Creator of the person that's doing that good work. A lot of people do things in this world that we would look at as being pretty generous and pretty good. But if they don't do them for the sole purpose of to glorify Yahweh, they're a sinful act in the eyes of Yahweh. I know that's hard to grasp, but if it's not done to Yahweh, and it's done to man, then it's not right. Everything's got to be done focusing upon Him, looking upon Him. Everything. This is what verse 21 is talking about. Some people have deviated from the faith because of this secular knowledge. Instead of guarding what was taught to them from the Scriptures... They thought their way right out of it based upon human speculation and knowledge of mere mankind. Well, look at all the degrees this guy's got or look at all the colleges that he's graduated from. But he doesn't believe the Scriptures are true. This guy might be an atheist or an agnostic. He's only bearing knowledge that's falsely called knowledge. It's not real knowledge if it's not the knowledge of Scripture. This is what the people in the day of Noah did. They did the same thing. They said, you mean it's going to rain? For how long? That's impossible. That doesn't line up with what we think, with our knowledge. Noah there, by the way, Genesis, it tells us he found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. That's why he was able to obey and begin to work on that ark for a long time. And the sinners and the ungodly didn't believe him. But the knowledge was from Yahweh. They thought their secular knowledge trumped the knowledge of Yahweh. Don't let that happen in your life. Or you might miss the boat like the people in Noah's day. And once Yahweh shuts the door, He doesn't let anybody in. Don't rely on secular knowledge. Yahweh comes first. His knowledge is what matters. Don't be somebody that drowns, somebody that's destroyed because you went with the knowledge of what man said. It's a form of worshiping the creature over the Creator. Romans chapter 1. Looking to man for all the answers. When Proverbs 3 says, Lean not unto thine own understanding. Acknowledge Yahweh in all your ways. Let Him direct your paths. The way of a man's heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. Who can know it? You don't always follow your mind and your heart. They'll lead you wrong. You follow the Scriptures. They'll never lead you wrong. Never. you got to have that kind of faith in them. And Paul ends by saying this. He ends this epistle. Grace be with all of you. And that's how I want to end the sermon today. Because we all need the grace of Yahweh if we want to have any chance of being obedient to His instructions.
Never, ever forget the grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. Moses found mercy in the eyes of Yahweh. Paul said in Ephesians 2 verse 8, It is for by grace he had been saved. Grace. One good definition of grace is from James Strong in Strong's Concordance. He states that grace is the divine influence upon the heart of man and its reflection in the life. Yahweh gives influence upon man's heart and that influence is reflected in the life that that man lives. That's how you can tell if somebody has grace poured out into their life. They're being influenced by heavenly influence. And we need to let Yahweh's grace come into us and let it influence our heart and our mind so much that we don't think like the world thinks. We don't look to their knowledge. We look to Scripture. And we reflect all the truths of Yahweh to people that we meet. And then we, by the grace of Yahweh, influence other people in a positive way. Keeping the commandments. Doing what's right. Loving Yahweh. Glorifying Yahweh. Grace be with you all today. There's only one thing that's going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous in the day of judgment. The righteous are the ones that had grace applied to their life. The unrighteous are the ones that didn't get it. You know what they get? They don't get something that's not fair. They get justice. They get the justice of Yahweh. That which we all deserve, but some of us don't get because of grace. Grace that is earned is not grace. Grace that is deserved is not grace. Grace is given to somebody when they do not deserve it. When they fall short. It's not a license to sin. It's not a license for licentiousness. It's just a loving Father showing on His vessels of mercy His grace and His mercy. Grace be with you all.